Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Stuck on Arrakis. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another Discworld episode. Uh, this time we're talking about Mort, and if you guys have listened to any of my other Discworld episodes, you know that Death is my favorite character, and now we get to meet Death. So I was really excited to read this book, and I'm really excited to talk about it too. So far, when we've met him, he's just been kind of like normal Death, right? robe, skeleton, scythe, coming and reaping souls and whatever. But in this book, we get to see a little bit more of his personality, which is precious and amazing in every single way. <laughs> so let's get into it. Um, I'll stop talking about how much I love death and just talk about the book. <laughs> oh wait, I'm supposed to introduce myself. I keep forgetting because I just assume that everybody knows who I am and that's not the case at all. So my name is Leslie. I host this podcast by myself most of the time and I'm always covered in pet hair. Just a little note about me. If you are in our discord, you probably already assumed that, but just in case you're not, um, I have three cats and a dog and they love me so much they think I'm their couch and I literally am covered in cat hair. <laughs> it doesn't help that I have a very hot topic goth aesthetic, so I wear mostly black. Um, yeah, and all of the hair shows up. <laughs> uh, okay, anyway, so the basic plot of Mort is that uh, Death takes on an apprentice named Mortimer, or Mort for short, <laughs> which is very apt if you consider his line of work. Um, Death tells Mort about 50,000 times during his training that he cannot interfere or be the judge of whether or not somebody lives or dies. Uh, he's just there to get their soul to the other side. And as I'm sure you can guess, because Mort is a young man, <laughs> he stops a princess from dying because she's cute and he thinks he loves her. And then he rips reality in two. And the basic plot of the book is him fucking up and then trying to fix it. <laughs> But first, of course, I want to start this conversation, this book discussion, um, with a little bit about death. We're going to start with death because I don't know how many times I've told you guys that I love him more than anything else in the world. <laughs> um, so death, one of my favorite things about death is that he loves cats. So on their first job together, he takes Mort to, uh, you know, reap a soul or whatever and while they are waiting outside, um, Death notices that there's a, or I don't know, he goes and reaps the soul of a bag of kittens who has been, I don't know, abandoned or injured or um, something like that. But he says, there are times, you know, he said half to himself when I get really upset. I get very angry indeed, he said. He upended the sack and Mort watched the pathetic scraps of sodden fur slide out to lie in their spreading puddle on the cobbles. Oh my god. So, <laughs> I don't know if you guys just heard that, but in the middle of me talking about how much Death likes cats, my cats got into a huge fight right outside the room. And I don't know, I just feel like, you know, I talked about being covered in the cat hair and stuff, so I'm just gonna leave that in. So let's start this this paragraph over. <laughs> uh, he says, I get very angry indeed, he said. He upended the sack and Mort watched the pathetic scraps of sodden fur slide out to lie in their spreading puddle on the cobbles. Death reached out with his white fingers and stroked them gently. He sighed like the swish of a shroud, picked the kittens out of the air, and carefully stowed them away somewhere in the dark recesses of his robe. <laughs> So not only did Death reap those little kitten souls, but he's going to keep them. And 
it makes them angry that somebody somebody did that to some poor innocent kittens. Um, that moment right there. Oh my god, my cat is just screaming in the background. <laughs> I'm gonna go insane. None of my cats want me to record today. Anyway, um, that's when I really fell in love with death is whenever he he shows so much kindness to kittens. And you don't really see him show that kind of kindness to anybody else or any other souls that he reaps. That's his job. But when he reaps these kittens' souls, he is so loving to them. Um, and he's so angry that this happened. And I don't know. I just thought that that was really sweet. And I was surprised that Death cared about kittens this much. And um, I don't know. That's just That's just a good representation of this death on the whole is that he's a very caring person. He really likes, I don't want to say really likes, but he has, he has a history of rescuing things in need, um, like Isabel, and we'll talk about her in a minute. Um, somehow he's a murderer of curries, which is one of my favorite things about death is that he's definitely a skeleton. Like he doesn't have any internal organs, um, but he still finds a way to enjoy human food like curries. Um, he doesn't take no for an answer, and he doesn't let anything stop him from enjoying what he likes, which is something that I admire a lot about Death. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I am a Hot Topic goth, and Death really appeals to my Hot Topic goth sensibilities, especially in the description of his house. So, um, Death has a, a small and quaint house in this, like, realm of his, um, where, you know, he's created the entire realm. Everything in it was created by Death. Death's garden was big, neat, and well-attended. It was also very, very black. <laughs> the grass was black. The flowers were black. Black apples gleamed among the black leaves of a black apple tree. Even the air looked inky. <laughs> I think when I was in high school, I had a dream that I would have a black garden someday or something. <laughs> Death also really knows how to party. Whenever he takes Mort to his first job, they get there a little early, so Death says, let's mingle and have some snacks. <laughs> in Equal Rights, um, a bunch of the elder wizards do the rite of Ash Ashikande or Kante or something like that. I can't remember the exact name of it. Uh, but where they summon death. <laughs> and when he gets there, he's like, he was obviously in the middle of the party. And he tells them that they interrupted his party. So he better get on. They better get on with what, whatever the fuck they wanted. <laughs> uh, I love death. Death is also a really troubled character in this particular book. He is extremely lonely, which is something that Mort comes to realize as he works with him, especially at the end. That death is the most lonely creature in the world. I don't know. Can you call death a creature? I don't fucking know. <laughs> um, but he is ready to try something new in this book. So he does a lot of, I don't want to say soul searching, but just trying different shit out to see if any of it is, I don't know, <laughs> um, what he wants to do or something that makes him happy. And at some point he's talking to Albert, who I will talk about in just a second. But he says... What is that sense inside your head of wistful regret that things are the way they apparently are? Albert says, sadness, master, I think. And Death says, I am sadness, which is heartbreaking. So in this book, Death tries out a lot of new hobbies. 
Um, one of the hobbies that he tries out is fishing. And let me, or I don't know, fish lore making, I guess. Um, let me read the fish lore thing that he makes. Um, I don't know anything about fishing, so please, please forgive me. Um, <laughs> but let me just read this to you because it's amazing. Anglers reckon that a good dry fly should cunningly mimic the real thing. There are the right flies for morning, there are different flies for the evening rise, and so on. But the thing between death's triumphant digits was a fly from the dawn of time. <laughs> it was the fly in the primordial soup. It had bred on mammoth turds. It wasn't a fly that bangs on the window panes. It was a fly that drills through walls. <laughs> it was an insect that would crawl out from between the slats of the heaviest swat, dripping venom and seeking revenge. Strange wings and dangling bits stuck out all over it. It seemed to have a lot of teeth. What's it called? said Mort. I shall call it Death's Glory. <laughs> um, he also learns the banjo, or tries to learn the banjo at some point. I think that might have been in the past. <laughs> but Mort says, I see him as more of an organ type. <laughs> Which I agree. <laughs> At some point, uh, I think Mort and Albert are talking about emotions, and I think it was Albert that says death can't feel emotions or feelings because he doesn't have glands. <laughs> and we all know that's where feelings come from, right? It's the glands. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is really cool is, obviously, death has a very important job to do. Um, and the way that he figures out who's going to die next Obviously, he has this huge room full of hourglasses um, that he has to use this elaborate chart. He does this very elaborate charting or something like that to figure out who needs to die next. So I would argue that death is the real star of the show, but we also have to talk about Mort. Mort is the apprentice. Uh, Mort is short for Mortimer, which sounds like mortal or mortality. So that's kind of a perfect name for him. Uh, but whenever we first meet him, he's not really stupid. He's just kind of oblivious and uncoordinated. Um, you can tell that his father doesn't have, like, the highest hopes for him. <laughs> the narration says, In short, Mort was one of those people who are more dangerous than a bag full of rattlesnakes. He was determined to discover the underlying logic behind the universe. <laughs> um, so I think that being Death's apprentice is a perfect job for him. So the way that that comes about is uh, that Mort's dad takes him to like an apprentice fair, which I guess is like a job fair. And um, the whole day they stay there and watch everyone else get picked for apprenticeships except for Mort. And at the end of the night, when Mort and I think, like, one other guy are still there. Oh, actually. No, I think he's completely alone. <laughs> um, Death comes up and is like, hey, I'm looking for an apprentice. And so, by default, Mort is Death's apprentice now. When Death learns Mort's name, he says, what a coincidence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, whenever Death and uh, Death meets Mort and Mort's dad... Uh, Mort's dad asks uh, what Death's business is, because obviously he's trying to get his son to apprentice with him. Where did you say your business was? said Lozek. Is it far? No further than the thickness of a shadow, said Death. Where the first primal cell was, there was I also. Where man is, there am I. When the last life crawls under freezing stars, there I will be. <laughs> and then Mort's dad says, ah, you get about a bit then. <laughs> Yes, he does. 
Oh, that's funny. Uh, Mort's first job with death that he gets to go on and observe is in Stolot, I, I think is the way that you pronounce that. And I thought it was interesting, so I wanted to take a look at that real quick. Death's first job for Mort is to go to Stolat, where um, the Duke is murdering his brother, and the, who is the king. Um, so whenever they get there, there's basically like a party or a feast or something going on, and uh, the Duke poisons the king, and Death and Mort reap the king, and... Um, Princess Kelly is there, and she is the princess that Mort will eventually fall in love with and rip time in two for. <laughs> um, but here, he sees her, and I guess it was, it's love at first sight. He immediately falls in love with her, so that when later, when the Duke also has Princess Kelly killed um, so that he can be the king, because now, obviously, now that the king is gone, Princess Kelly will be the queen. Uh, so he has her killed as well, <laughs> obviously, you know, like you do if you're trying to win a monarchy. <laughs> um, but the first job is where Mort sees Princess Kelly and falls in love with her for the first time. So it's a really important moment. And it's also like, really, you fell in love with the first girl you saw? <laughs> Mort does eventually start to go out on his own and do jobs on his own while death you know, starts working at a cafe or whatever. <laughs> um, and the characters that we meet that he reaps are really interesting. Um, the first one is a witch. Um, I really liked her. She was very sassy, very witchy. <laughs> um, and he also uh, reaped a monk that's constantly being reincarnated. So after the, um, after the monk is reaped, he like, the soul like goes into uh, the next baby that's born or whatever. And it's like the disc's way of looking at reincarnation, which I think is really interesting. I, I really enjoy that Terry Pratchett gives his cultures and his world lots of room for different beliefs to exist. Uh, because with so many different countries and continents on the disc, um, it only makes sense that there's a lot of different culture and religions and things like that. And that's a really good tell of different world building is, um, does the world have the kind of diversity that our world has at least, you know, um, whenever you're creating a functional world, like, yeah, you can make it boring, you know, you can make it like one culture, but that's not very interesting. <laughs> so, um, I like to see stuff like this in the world. Um, people having different beliefs and foods and different cities have different ways that they run and things like that. And I think Terry Pratchett is really good at doing things like that. Um, obviously, I also enjoy Robert Jordan's world building a lot for that same reason. Um, I feel like he thinks of things that would actually happen in real life that you don't normally see in books, um, but that would happen if you know, the wetlands or the disc actually existed. Like, of course, there would be all kinds of different religions. Um, of course, there would be crime. Of course, there would be, I don't know, <laughs> a space program. I have no idea. <laughs> but I think that uh, Mord's character arc is very interesting because whenever we meet him, um, I don't know, everybody just seems kind of disappointed and unenthusiastic about him. And 
you know, I thought he was going to be a fuck up the whole time, <laughs> whenever I first read this. But if you see him start to go out and do jobs on his own, I mean, he really fucked up the first one <laughs> when he was supposed to reap Princess Kelly. There was an assassin in her, that like comes into her bedroom at night and is about to stab her. And he stops the, um, he stops the assassin from killing Princess Kelly. So that was, that was a little bit rough. <laughs> but the next, um, the next jobs that he goes on, you know, he starts to get a little bit better. And towards the end of the book, he is very death-like. He is a uh, very real feeling. Um, whenever Albert and the wizards at the university summon death to see where he is, it tries to pull Mort in, if I'm remembering correctly. So he's really starting to take on the role of death towards the end of the book. And he's getting very good at his job, um, even though, you know, he hasn't actually gotten that much experience yet. And um, I know his first job was such a huge fuck up. But also, if you think about it, death himself is off doing other things. He's a cook in a restaurant and uh, surrounded by kitty friends. And maybe the more you do the death thing, the more you become death. And maybe um, because Mort was for a time there the reaper of souls. Uh, I don't know if there's some transition of power or something like that. I don't know. But uh, Mort does grow a lot throughout the book. So I thought he was an interesting character. I don't know if I would like hang out with him because <laughs> uh, he's kind of lame. But there are a couple of other supporting characters in this book that I really loved. Death's daughter, Isabel, is one of those. Um, Isabel was adopted by Death after he reaped her parents. He brought her to the realm of Death where she could just continue living. She does pretty quickly develop a crush on Mort. And Death seems to think from the mo minute <laughs> that Mort gets there that he and Isabel are going to fall in love and get married. Which does actually happen, um, but it was definitely one-sided there for a minute because Mort was very interested in Princess Kelly. Isabel is also really lonely, and this is an important part of her character because um, she is in Death's Realm, which is where time never passes, you never die, um, nothing in, in Death's world is actually real, it's just like copies of things that he's, he's seen in the world that he liked enough to put in his world. But there's no time. And there's also no other living people except for Albert. So Isabel, I mean, who is, you know, who who knows how old he is. She doesn't have anyone her age there. Um, so she's really lonely. There's no, there's no one her age to talk to that probably shares her interest. Um, death is, death is death. So he doesn't understand and Albert is Albert, so he doesn't understand her either. Uh, Terry Pratchett does make a point to let us all know that um, Isabel is a little bit of a tits McGee. Let me find the passage. <laughs> it says, Mort glanced sideways at the top of Isabel's dress, which contained enough puppy fat for two litters of Rottweilers and forbore to comment. <laughs> There's also a room in Death's house where everybody's, it's a big library full of everybody's biographies that are being written as the people live their lives, or the biographies of people who have already died. Um, and apparently Isabel likes to go into the library and find biographies about like star-crossed lovers and things like that, and she reads them and cries. <laughs> so she's a bit romantic, and I think 
reading all of those stories and watching people get to live their lives and grow older and have families and things like that while she is sitting immortal in death's underworld or wherever it is that he lives. I mean, I understand why she's lonely. You know, she doesn't get to be a part of that. And apparently she's been down there for 35 years and she hasn't aged a day. She's still 16. And let me tell you, I do not want to be 16 again for one minute, <laughs> let alone 35 years. That sounds horrible. I don't, I don't blame her. <laughs> I do think that it's interesting that Death's first choice of apprentice wasn't Isabel, um, but I'm guessing that um, him picking Mort was to do with him needing an apprentice A and B, um, trying to find a suitable match for his daughter. Um, so I think that he needed a reason to bring another human down that was closer to her age, that's young, like Isabel, and that she could possibly have a connection with. And then we have Albert, the only other living soul <laughs> in Death's realm. And at first, Albert is just kind of like a work hand, I guess. He like cooks and does shit. I don't know. It's really unclear what his role in the realm is. Um, but we find out later that Albert is actually a wizard and he's the founder of the Unseen University. He didn't want to die. <laughs> so he escaped to Death's domain to keep living. I don't know why Death was just like, okay, I guess so. You can stay forever. <laughs> but that's exactly what happens. And then, uh, last but certainly not least, we have Binky, <laughs> who is Death's horse. And the way he's described is amazing. Hold on. Mort remembered the woodcut in his grandmother's almanac between the page on planting times and the phases of the moon section, showing death the great leveler comes to all men. He'd stared at it hundreds of times when learning his letters. It would have been half so impressive if it had been generally known that the flame-breathing horse the specter rode was called Binky. <laughs> I love it. Binky is a very sweet, um, kind of regular horse, and he and Mort have a pretty good relationship. I think he's a very sweet horse. Um, <laughs> definitely not the horse that you think Death would ride around on, but that's all right. Let's go back to Princess Kelly for just a minute, because um, she is one of the driving forces behind the entire plot. She is the first reap that... Um, Mort goes on by himself, and in doing so, he completely fucks up, decides that he doesn't want Princess Kelly to die, stops the assassin from killing her, and then, I mean, just space and time rip apart. <laughs> he fucks up the entire universe because Kelly is still alive when she shouldn't be, um, and people don't really notice her. Um, it's like she's a ghost, even though she's there, and they can see her, um, I think the explanation for that was like their minds know what the reality is supposed to be. So it's hard for them to recognize that she's there. Um, and eventually the kind of split in reality starts to shrink. And as it shrinks into Stolot, um, time, the reality changes. Um, so the smaller this bubble is becoming, the less of the reality where Princess Kelly is alive exists, if that makes any sense. Um, so really the driving factor behind the plot towards the middle and end of the book is that the reality bubble is slowly shrinking and they have to stop it, find a way to stop it uh, before Princess Kelly eventually dies when the reality catches up to her. 
We also have Cutwell, who is a wizard in Stolot that Kelly goes to, hoping that he can help her, like, go back to normal and <laughs> be remembered and for people to see her. Mort also meets Cutwell uh, shortly before that, I think, um, when he just has, like, a day off or something. This part cracks me up. So whenever, I think, I think it's whenever Mort meets Cutwell, Whenever he first meets Mort, he gives himself all of these, like, crazy grandiose titles, like, Holder of the Eight Keys and Supreme Mage. <laughs> and then he says, That was advertising, said the wizard. It's a kind of magic I've been working on. <laughs> um, some of you guys might know that I work in marketing, so that made me laugh. Most of what I have to talk about, honestly, is shit that made me laugh. Like, so much of this book cracked me up. <laughs> When we first get introduced to Mort, uh, we find out that his family grows reannual grapes. And apparently reannuals are plants that grow backwards in time. So you sow the seed this year and they grow last year. <laughs> and I just watched Tenet the other day. I'm basically a pro at how shit like that works. You know, shit traveling back through time. So Mort's family makes wine with these reannual re grapes. And the only snag is that you get a hangover the morning before and had to drink a lot to get over it the next day. <laughs> I want to look at Death and Mort's first meeting. Okay, it says, hold on. It says, and then they heard the clip-clop of hooves, which boomed rather more loudly around the chilly square than common acoustics should really allow. In fact, clip-clop was an astonishingly <laughs> inaccurate word for the kind of noise which rattled around in Mort's head. Clip-clop suggested a rather jolly little pony, quite possibly wearing a straw hat with holes cut out for its ears. An edge to this sound made it very clear that straw hats weren't an option. <laughs> it's very ominous. I also I always love descriptions of Ankh-Morpork, and there's a great one in this book. Ankh-Morpork is as full of life as an old cheese on a hot day. <laughs> as loud as a curse in a cathedral, as bright as an oil slick, as colorful as a bruise, and as full of activity, industry, bustle, and sheer exuberant busyness as a dead dog on a termite mound. <laughs> there were temples, their doors wide open, filling the streets with the sound of gongs, cymbals, and, in the case of some more conservative fundamentalist religions, the brief screams of its victims. <laughs> There seemed to be rather a lot of friendly young ladies who couldn't afford many clothes. There were flares and jugglers and assorted sellers of instant transcendence. I'm interested in some instant transcendence. <laughs> I've already been instantly transcended. <laughs> People kept trying to sell him unpleasant spices and suggestively shaped vegetables. <laughs> and a rather elderly lady said, against all the evidence that he looked a well-set-up young lad who would like to have a nice time. And he thanked her very much and said that he hoped he was having a nice time already. <laughs> oh, yes, this was... Okay, so that description of Ankh-Morpork happens before they go and murder a curry, which I love. <laughs> At some point, uh, somebody... It might be more... I think it was more asked um, Death how he got all of those coins. And he says in pairs, <laughs> uh, because I don't know if it's some religions or cultures or, or something like that, but they put coins on their eyes when they die. 
for some reason, so they'll have fortune in the next life or something. Wow, I seem really ignorant right now, but you guys know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Hold on, I have to Google it. Fuck. Ah, apparently it's because those coins were a bribe or payment used to ferry the dead into the underworld. Oh, okay. Oh, well, okay. It says, okay, so ancient Greece, <laughs> Catholics, Christians. Um, so yeah, there are some cultures and religions that do that. Uh, but that, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Let's look at Isabel and Mort's first meeting as well. Oh my god. So she he starts to go into a room or something and she says, you must go in there. He turned around. There was a girl there about his own height and perhaps a few years older than him. She had silver hair and eyes with a pearly sheen to them and a kind of interesting but impractical long dress that tends to be worn by tragic heroines who clasp single roses to their bosom while gazing soulfully at the moon. <laughs> Mort had never heard the phrase pre-Raphaelite, which was a pity because it would have been almost the right description. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So I think one really popular trope is like the master who takes on an apprentice and then asks like all of these vague and uh, weird questions to try to get them to come to some realization on their own. <laughs> Death asks, and why do you think I directed you to the stables? Think carefully now. And Mort goes, well, I think it was because you were up to your knees in horse shit to tell you the truth. <laughs> Death looked at him for a long time. Mort shifted uneasily from one foot to the other. Absolutely correct, snapped Death. Clarity of thought, realistic approach, very important in a job like ours. <laughs> uh-huh. And then what happened? <laughs> oh, here's another funny direct answer to a, a question. <laughs> this is with Albert, and um, Albert and Mort are talking about something. Mort's asking him a bunch of questions about Death, and he said... What do you do it all for? He said. Albert grunted. Do you know what happens to lads who ask too many questions? Mort thought for a moment. No, he said eventually. What? There was a silence. Then Albert straightened up and said, Damned if I know, probably they get answers and serves them right. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. The note in my, my notes say that the next point is royalty versus peasants. I don't know what that means. Oh, Oh, <laughs> okay, so they reap, um, they reap the king, and Death goes, a good clean job, said Death, royalty are always a problem, they tend to want to hang on, your average peasant now, he can't wait, <laughs> I bet they can't, oh, okay, <laughs> okay, he goes to, An so Mort goes to Ankh-Morpork for the first time, and it says, so Mort gets a day off, I think Death, like, sends him just to some random place for his, for his day off. Doesn't tell Mort where he's going. Because Mort asks whenever he gets there, um, where am I? And a guy says, this is Ankh Morpork. He said, anyone ought to be able to see that. Smell it, too. Mort sniffed. There was a certain something about the air in the city. You got the feeling that it was air that had seen life. You couldn't help noting with every breath that Thousands of other people were very close to you, and nearly all of them had armpits. <laughs> the stallholder regarded Mort critically, noting the pale face, well-cut clothes, and strange presence, a sort of coiled spring effect. Look, I'll be frank, he said. I could point you in the direction of a great brothel. I've already had lunch, said Mort. <laughs> ah, 
<laughs> Here's another really funny passage. Um, uh, somebody, somebody was cussing. Hold on. Hold on. Let me find it. Oh my god. This joke is so funny. I don't even know if it's going to come across well at all in audio form. Um, somebody will have to tell me how the audiobook manages this, but I'm going to pronounce all the dashes. So these thieves try to like hold Mort up and steal all of his money. And he just like is like whatever and just throws the bag into the river and it gets like sucked in. <laughs> and then he says, well, dash, 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 dash me. He said, a dash, 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 dashing wizard. I hate dash, 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 dashing wizards. You shouldn't dash, dash, dash them then, <laughs> muttered one of his henchmen, effortlessly pronouncing a row of dashes. Probably a lot better than I did. God, that's so funny. Because <laughs> ah. whenever you first read it, you're like, oh, he's like bleeping out the word fuck, right? But no. <laughs> Cuss words are actually dashes on the disc, I guess. <laughs> I really like learning about all of the religions and philosophies and the science of Discworld, you know, of that the people on the disc believe. Um, and one thing that's really interesting is how many creation theories that they have and just kind of philosophies on the general creation of the universe and things like that. And apparently there's a group called the Listeners and who are trying to work out precisely what it was that the creator said when he made the universe. The theory is quite straightforward. Clearly, nothing that the creator makes could ever be destroyed, which means that the echoes of those first syllables must still be somewhere bouncing and rebounding off all of the matter in the cosmos, but still audible to a really good listener. I think that's really interesting. Terry Pratchett uses one of my very favorite words in the English language in this book, so I wanted to read the surrounding bits. So Mort goes to, uh, oh, this was actually um, after Mort saves Kelly from being killed by this assassin. And I don't know, they're just moving through the house trying to figure something out. <laughs> uh, is Kelly asks if Mort just saved her life. He said, I don't know what I just did. Is there a light around here? And Kelly starts to like feel around for some matches. <laughs> and... <laughs> Mort, like, walks off to also look for a light, and it says, There were a few hesitant footsteps, a couple of thumps, and finally a loud clang, although the word isn't sufficient to describe the real ripe cacophony of falling metal that had filled the room. It was even followed by the traditional little tinkle a couple of seconds later after you thought it was all over. <laughs> That's such a hilarious and visceral description of that exact phenomenon. <laughs> There's also a great description of light on the disc in this book, and I love any and all descriptions of the way light moves on the disc because it's so cool. This says, an hour later, dawn reached the city. Daylight on the disc flows rather than rushes because light is slowed right down by the world's standing magical field and it rolled across the flatlands like a golden sea. The city on the mound stood out like a sandcastle in the tide for a moment, until the day swirled around it and crept onwards. Ah, beautiful. I love that. Um, somebody... <laughs> hold on, who is it? I think Albert's talking about princesses, and he says, The princesses were beautiful as the day is long, and so noble they, they could pee through a dozen mattresses. <laughs> 
most of you guys probably know the, the princess and the pea, you know, where she can fill the pea underneath like 20 mattresses or something. But in the disc world, they can pee straight through them. <laughs> oh, I love that. During the discussion of equal rights, we talked a lot about the kind of potions and things that the witches make, um, most of them being like boner pills and abortives and things like that. And um, apparently Cutwell makes something called Cutwell's Shield of Passion Ointment. Provides your wild oats while guaranteeing a crop failure, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Later, whenever Kelly goes to visit him to see what is going on and why nobody recognizes her anymore, uh, recognizes her anymore, she's, he, uh, he says, Everything and everyone thinks you're dead. I don't, said Kelly, but her voice was less than confident. I'm afraid your opinion doesn't count. <laughs> oh, God, that's funny. Oh, okay, so if you guys are listening to my uh, Wheel of Time episodes, you might remember a particular chapter transition that I really liked in Crown of Swords. There's another great chapter transition in this book. Um, also, I, it's apparently annoying little fucking playing day outside my house, so I can't keep stopping to wait for it to go away because it's taking me too long to record, so you might hear planes in the background, I'm sorry. <laughs> so she hires him as her royal recognizer, and the chapter ends, well, he says royal because I don't think he realizes that this is Princess Kelly, um, but she says, you're a wizard. I think there's something you ought to know. And the next chapter starts with Death saying, there is. And I love that because it's such a, um, I don't know, it's like Hollywood magic. But the, the paragraph after that says, that was a cinematic trick, adapted for print. <laughs> Death wasn't really talking to the princess. He was actually in his study talking to Mort. But it was quite effective, wasn't it? It's probably called a fast dissolve or cross-cut zoom or something, an industry where a senior technician is called a best boy might call it anything, which is hilarious. I love that. <laughs> There's a passage that says, people don't alter history any more than birds alter the sky. They just make brief patterns in it. I don't remember, I don't remember where Mort goes, uh, but he's at a random bar. Hold on. And they give him an entire glass of a drink called Scumble. <laughs> Apparently it's the strongest drink on the disc, and he just drinks an entire, it's like, it's like taking a shot of, like, super strong liquor, but he drinks an entire glass of it, and everybody's just watching him in awe. He looked at the boy, okay, this is the bartender, he looked at the boy with something verging on admiration. It wasn't that he drunk a third of a pint of scumble in itself, it was that he was still vertical and apparently alive. <laughs> he handed the pot back again. It was as if Mort was being given a trophy after some incredible contest. When the boy took another mouthful, several of the watchers winced. <laughs> the landlord wondered what Mort's teeth were made of and decided it must be the same stuff as his stomach. And then they ask him if he's a wizard. <laughs> and apparently after drinking that much scumble, he'll just have a headache for the next few weeks, but he'll be fine. <laughs> as someone who's had week-long headaches, um, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Oh, I saw something interesting. Um, it's it's really interesting to go back and read this book now that I've also finished a lot of Neil Gaiman's bibliography. Bibliography? Yeah, I guess so. Bibliography. I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
um, most of Neil Gaiman's books is because I keep catching Neil Gaiman references or, I don't know, the inspiration for some of Neil Gaiman's other work. Um, so basically what Cutwell does for Princess Kelly is they put like a bunch of posters of her um, around the town and things like that. Like all of these very stark reminders that Princess Kelly exists. And um, Mort said, Mort's trying to figure out what the, all of it's about. <laughs> and uh, Cutwell says, well, you see, I reckon that if enough people believed in her, they could change reality. It works for gods. If people stop believing in God, he dies. If a lot of them believe in him, he grows stronger. And that's literally the premise behind American Gods by Neil Gaiman, which is a great book. But I thought it was interesting to see it pop up in the Terry Pratchett book. But like I said, I shouldn't be that surprised because they were good friends and they did a lot of work together. I just don't know which came first, this idea or Neil Gaiman's idea. At some point, this book references somebody wearing a Walkman, <laughs> which was like, uh, I don't know, that was hilarious. Remember Walkmans? <laughs> this is another great description of Ankh-Morpork that I can't not read. It was midnight in Ankh-Morpork. But in the great twin city, the only difference between night and day was, well, it was darker. The markets were thronged. The spectators were still thickly clustered around the whore pits. Runners up in the city's eternal and Byzantine gang warfare drifted silently down through the chilly waters of the river with lead weights tied to their feet. Dealers in various illegal and even illogical delights plied their sidelong trade. Burglars burgled, knives flashed starlight in alleyways, astrologers started their day's work, and in the shades, a night watch man who had lost his way rang a bell and cried out, 12 o'clock and all's arrrr. <laughs> ah, that's my interpretation of that noise. <laughs> so while Mort is kind of off uh, taking over some of these jobs, these reaping jobs, Death is kind of on a journey of self-discovery to try to figure out what he enjoys and what makes him happy, uh, because that's not something that he gets to think about a lot. So he goes to a party and he tries a conga line just to see what it's all about. <laughs> he goes to a bar and drinks a bunch of alcohol. And I do want to read this little section. What is that green one? The landlord peered at the label. It says melon brandy, he said doubtfully. It says it's bottled by some monks to an ancient recipe. I'll try it. <laughs> no, what is the yellow one with the wasps in it? Spring cordial. It says, yes, yes. And then the blue one with the gold flecks. Er, old overcoat? <laughs> yes, and then the second row. Which one do you have in mind? All of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> Death drinks every alcohol in the bar. I don't see the point, the stranger said. Sorry? What is supposed to happen? How many drinks have you had? 47. <laughs> ah. Death also says, nobody ever invites him to parties. They all hate me. Everyone hates me. I don't have a single friend. And then he says, I think I could be friends with the green bottle. <laughs> no, Death, don't be friends with the bottle. Apparently, Death can also turn off and on being drunk. Um, so he can just be like, oh, I don't feel like being drunk anymore. Isn't that crazy? But Death is really lonely. He's trying to figure out what he likes um, and what he wants to do while Mort is off um, reaping souls and definitely not fixing the gigantic rip in space-time that he's created. We get a description of Isabel's room, which really cracked me up. Mort looked around him. Isabel was heavily into frills. 
Even the dressing table seemed to be wearing a petticoat. The whole room wasn't so much furnished as lingerie. <laughs> Death and his journey of self-discovery goes to see a job broker, which apparently he's like the only one because nobody else has invented being a job broker. Um, but it says on his resume or whatever paperwork he fills out that he wants something nice working with cats or flowers. I love him. <laughs> That's what is on my resume too. I just want to work with cats and books and flowers. So I don't blame death for trying. The job broker says, you see, it's very seldom I ever have to find a new career for an, what was it again? Anthropomorphic personification. <laughs> What is that exactly? Death had enough. This, he said. And then Death shows him what he really looks like, which was way too much for that guy to handle on like a Tuesday. <laughs> Some lady comes in and is like unhappy with the job that this guy got her working at the Unseen University as like in the kitchens. And uh, it says, okay, she's like, she's making a scene in this building. And it says, Death stared at her. He'd never before experienced an unsatisfied customer. He was at a loss. Finally, he gave up. Be gone, you black and midnight hag, he said. <laughs> May all the demons of hell rend your living spirit if you don't get out of the shop this minute, Death tried. I don't know about that, but what about my bed warmer? It's no place for a respectable woman up there. They tried to. If you would care to go away, said Death desperately, I will give you some money. <laughs> How much, said the cook, with a speed that would have outdistanced a striking rattlesnake and given lightning a nasty shock. <laughs> oh, God, that's so funny. These are two funny passages about Ankh-Morpork. The Ankh-Morpork Guild of Merchants had taken to hiring large gangs of men with ears like fists and fists like large bags of walnuts, whose job it was to re-educate those misguided people who publicly failed to recognize the many attractive points of their fine city. For example, the philosopher Catroaster <laughs> Cat was found floating face downward in the river within hours of uttering the famous line, When a man is tired of Ankh-Morpork, he is tired of ankle-deep slurry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at Ankh-Morpork, the cuisines of the world collide. On the menu are 1,000 types of vegetable, 1,500 cheeses, 2,000 spices, 300 types of meat, 200 fowl, 500 different kinds of fish, 100 variations on the theme of pasta, 70 eggs of one kind or another, 50 insects, 30 mollusks, 20 assorted snakes and other reptiles, and something pale, brown, and warty, known as the Clachian migratory bog truffle. <laughs> I want to try all of their food. So the plan with Princess Kelly and this reality bubble that she and Cutwell come up with is, well, let's just coronate you before this bubble of reality shrinks into changing our reality. Let's just make you queen before that happens. So <laughs> they're rushing the coronation because they don't have a lot of time. So, and there's two problems. They got to do it fast. And the high priest at the temple of Blind Io was going to be a problem. Cutwell had marked him down as a dear old soul whose expertise with the knife was so unreliable that half of the sacrifices got tired of waiting and wandered away. The last time he tried to sacrifice a goat, it had time to give birth to twins before he could focus, and then the courage of motherhood had resulted in it chasing the entire priesthood out of the temple. 
Fucking hilarious. <laughs> Skateboards were an unknown invention on the disc. If they hadn't been, Kelly's trip up the aisle would have been unconstitutionally fast. <laughs> ah. At some point, Albert decides that instead of just sitting in Death's domain while this reality-ripping thing happens, that he is going to go back to the world to deal with the whole reality-ripping-apart business, and the wizarding world is not ready for that shit, especially when you consider the horrible things that they've done to his statue during, like, sorority or fraternity pledge week. <laughs> we see Rincewind again in this book, which was a nice surprise. He's the assistant library, which was absolutely precious. And Albert is also really shitty to the librarian, so fuck you, Albert, officially. Okay, so some tribes on the disc construct these mirror walls in the desert mountains to collect the disc's sunlight, um, which they use as currency, which I thought was really cool. At the end of the book, Mort and Isabel do end up getting married. Death comes to the wedding ceremony, and the wedding- wait, not the ceremony, the reception. He does not come to the, the ceremony because he thought that that would be, um, I mean, if, if the Grim Reaper came to your wedding, that would be a little bit too much for some people. <laughs> so he, um, just goes to the reception, and for their wedding present, he gives them this pearl of reality that is the reality wherein princess kelly is still alive and is probably the queen i guess but it's just a pearl it's like the start of the un uh, of a new universe and death gives that to them as their wedding present which is really cool <laughs> so my final thoughts i really love this book i appreciated that mort and princess kelly didn't end up together because i like isabel more i don't actually like kelly very much <laughs> Um, and I think it would have been too tropey, you know. Terry Pratchett likes to play with tropes, but I feel like that would be a little bit too predictable. This book isn't super heavy on plot, but that's how most of the books have been. Stuff happens, but it's not like a ton of stuff, you know what I mean? Um, but still a really enjoyable read. I would say that Equal Rights is probably the most plot heavy of all the books so far. Um, and I think that's just because of how much they travel and how much happens when between their little village and then getting to the university and even after the university. Um, I feel like there's like more subplots in Equal Rights as well. Um, this one just had kind of like one main plot. Well, that's not true. That's trying to find himself was a subplot, but yeah. <laughs> I think my favorite part of this book, like the, the climax for me, was when um, Death finally finds out about the rift in reality and um, he and Mort have that fight in the hourglass room. Oh, that was really cool. And yeah, that's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love this book. I love all of you. See you later.